0: Good morning it's good to be here with you. I thought that you should be warned that I had at least one uh, nightmare about this sermon, and uh, things didn't go very well in the in my dream and uh, time management issues and uh, I was stumbling majorly everywhere so finally I just sat down uh, so I'm going to reserve the right to do that this morning if uh, that turned out to be a vision and not just a nightmare. So I asked my girls uh, earlier this week what I should preach about, and uh, one of them said God, and one of them said Jesus. So uh, hopefully we can do that this morning. Uh, As you probably saw in your bulletin, the title of this message is A Willing Cupbearer and i want you to know that um, i'm directing this uh towards myself as much as uh any of you uh, something i need to hear so um thinking about cupbearers in the bible i i kind of assumed that you know there would be a whole list of them uh we were familiar with the term but there aren't actually that many recorded at least what i found You remember, of course, uh, the cupbearer that um, was a cupbearer to Pharaoh that Joseph met in prison and he interpreted his dream for him and and he's mentioned several times in Genesis. And cupbearers are also mentioned when the Queen of Sheba was visiting uh, Solomon. Uh, It says there she was impressed by all sorts of other things But one of the things she was impressed with um, out of all the marvels were his cupbearers and their robes. And I thought that was an interesting little note. I don't know if they were particularly glamorous robes or matching or what, but uh, something about that impressed her. And finally, the the other cupbearer that the Bible mentions, which will be our focus this morning, is uh, Nehemiah. And I've been uh, challenged by looking at his life Uh, his usefulness to God, and I think we can uh, learn some lessons together along those lines this morning. So sometimes when we hear the words uh, Old Testament, uh, we groan, and um, I'm going to read from the NIV this morning. My hope is that even some of you younger folks here uh, can listen and, and understand this story it's really an interesting story, and I'm very glad that it's recorded in our Bibles. And just use your imagination, try to put yourself uh, in Nehemiah's shoes. He was a real man. Uh, this is a real story. Uh, the, the Old Testament doesn't have to be dry. Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we're going to start. Uh, the setting is this Nehemiah is a Jew. He is living in the, in the citadel of Susa. Sounds like something out of a Dr. Seuss book almost, doesn't it? This is quite some time after Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem. Some of the Jews had been allowed to return to the, the land, and some of them remained. So we're going to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, the whole thing, and we'll find some additional details here. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, and this is his prayer, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who, kept, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So right off the bat here, I'm impressed uh, with Nehemiah. Here he is uh, working in the, in the palace. We're not told anything about his family, but working in a palace doesn't sound like that bad a place to work, especially for someone who was uh, living in captivity. It sounds like he had kind of risen through the ranks, maybe. In verse 2, um, we have these men who return from Judah, and one of these uh, may have actually been a biological brother, uh, Hanani, a biological brother of Nehemiah, and he asks about the remnant living in Jerusalem. How are things going for the brothers back in the homeland? Sometimes successful people uh, forget where they came from. They forget those who they associated with um, before their success. Not Nehemiah. And when he heard about the condition of the walls... And the gates and the disgrace that his, um, his brothers were living in, he sat down and cried. Why? Uh, here he was, miles away. The fallen walls of Jerusalem weren't really affecting him. I imagine uh, the citadel walls of Susa were well built and strong, and furthermore, he was living in a palace, uh, probably well guarded, and um, the king's staff I'm sure was was kept safe from potential threats. It would seem to me like life was going pretty well for him, but somehow uh, his concern for his brothers uh, outweighed that. So being a man of God, he turns to the Lord in prayer. And this is quite a remarkable prayer. Uh, We're not going to be able to do it justice this morning. It's a beautiful prayer. But he he asks God to listen to his prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. And then he confesses uh, sin, the sin of his people. And you notice he... Lumps himself right in there, uh, including myself and my father's house. And then he he reminds God about his his promise uh, to restore his people if they will return to him. And then uh, right at the end, he closes with this with this very specific request. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So Nehemiah, uh, through the prompting of God, is beginning to form a course of action in his mind. And then uh, chapter 1 closes with, with this sentence, I was a cupbearer to the king. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I like how it's stated here almost as an afterthought. Oh, yes, uh, by the way, I'm in charge of seeing uh, the most important man in the kingdom, and I'm in charge of making sure his beverages are delivered on schedule and that everything is safe for him. I'm around the king every day, maybe into the evening, and he trusts me. But why I mention that, I'm really actually concerned about my brothers who are living in a place I've never lived. As I said earlier, I just find this concern uh, remarkable. All right, so let's continue uh, with the story. Uh, We're going to to read uh, Nehemiah 2, the first nine verses of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire the king said to me what is it you want then i prayed to the god of heaven and i answered the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight let him send me to the city in judah where my fathers are buried so that i can rebuild it then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's force, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters, and the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So this is four or five months uh, after Nehemiah's initial prayer. And we know that because of the uh, funny month names that are recorded here. And Nehemiah has been thinking and fasting and praying about this situation. And finally, it just seems like it comes to a head, bubbles up. And he doesn't just blurt out the situation to the king. Uh, That would be rude and unbecoming, And it's just not a very good way to ask. And I think Nehemiah probably had a good bit of experience and skill in how to operate uh, around the king with with delicate issues. Uh, Maybe he dropped a cup before. Uh, But he let his true feelings and sadness be seen by the king. And I think it's important to note that this wasn't just an, an acting job. I don't think he was trying to manipulate the king. Uh, he was really genuinely sad and burdened. Uh, we see this all throughout the story here. But he lets his guard down, uh, takes off his uh, cheerful face, and the king notices something is wrong. And, and the king says, uh, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. You're not just sick. This is... You're sad in your heart. So Nehemiah uses this opening in the conversation to to tell the king about his burden. And I think here we actually see a a really um, we see the human side of Nehemiah. It says, "I was very much afraid." Now, if we we put on our uh, biblical history hats, uh, we, we remember that there was another person who lived in the city of Susa, um, probably 35 to 40 years before Nehemiah, a person who was also afraid of a king, a person who approached the king on behalf of her people, and that, of course, was Queen Esther. Now, things uh, get a little bit murky that far back, but it would seem like, um, if you read, that King Xerxes who Esther was married, was the father to the king that Nehemiah served, Artaxerxes. If that's the case, uh, surely Nehemiah knew about Esther and what she did and how God worked on behalf of his people. Uh, Surely he knew about Esther's uh, fear and her struggle with what to do. Despite this, uh, despite all his prayer and fasting, he was afraid. Uh, he had a knot in his stomach. So the king is, is told about the situation, and no doubt um, by the providence of God in direct answer to Nehemiah's prayer, remember the words he prayed on um, back in, in chapter 1, He prayed for success and favor in the presence of this man, and this man being the king. And so the king asked Nehemiah, what what do you want? What do you need? What do you want me to do? So what does Nehemiah do? Once more, uh, he pauses for prayer before answering the king. And probably most of us, um, we've been in in a situation like that, right? Right? Uh, maybe you breathed a little prayer at one point before you walked in a room to speak or into some difficult situation. I think it's really neat that that this little tiny prayer is recorded here. And if you're someone who breathes uh, little sentence prayers as you go into a situation or throughout your day, then you're in pretty good company. So Nehemiah tells the king uh, that he would really like to go to Jerusalem and take on this building project. And he asked specifically for several things that would help him. He asked for letters uh, for safe passage and letters that would give him permission to uh, procure wood from the king's forests. And since uh, Nehemiah was, was officially a member of the government and he was actually going to assume the role of governor of Judah, uh, the king uh, sent him armed protection as well. So rather than read the next part of the story, I'm going to try to summarize it a little bit. Uh, not, not much is recorded about his trip, his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, he arrives, and after three days, he slips out at night uh, to inspect the city walls. And so far, um, it says uh, after three days, he hasn't told anyone um, the reason he arrived in Jerusalem. Now, I think uh, this gives us an interesting insight to into Nehemiah's character um, by his his actions here, his his lack of actions. You know, he didn't come waltzing into town, uh, flaunting his position, uh, waving the letters that he had from the king. Uh, He didn't brashly proclaim his intentions. He seems like a very wise and thoughtful man. He was a man of action, but he developed a plan first. He didn't just dive into things without first uh, understanding the situation. I see here a very humble man, a godly man, Not looking for the applause of men. Not using his uh, position in a self-glorying way, but humbly going about the task that God had called him to. And I do see a uh, determined glint in Nehemiah's eye. With God's help, we're going to get this done. And now I'm going to read uh, three verses. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this um, you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So again, uh, here I see amazing leadership qualities in Nehemiah. They're on display here in how he interacts with, with the people, his people. This is how a real leader gets things done. So after reminding the people of the poor condition of the wall, in the burned-out gates, he says, "Come, let us rebuild. Come." It's it's an invitation to join him in the work. It's it's not an order. It's not a command. Come. And along with that, um, we see two very two other very important words used in this exchange. These are powerful words that good leaders use. They're the words, we and us. There's no scolding the people who had grown accustomed to the broken down walls and their dire situation. Uh, No reprimanding them for their lack of attention to rebuilding the wall for decade after decade, just living the way it was. And by his, his careful actions and his words, he was able to do the other thing that a really good leader does, transfer his vision to the people. Let us start rebuilding, they said. And so they began this good work. This was a well-thought-out building plan. People were assigned to different areas of the wall to build, probably close to where they lived already for efficiency's sake. Here again we see Nehemiah's gift for leadership. He delegated. He didn't micromanage the builders, but he let them build their section of the wall. He knew that people thrive under responsibility and shared vision. I think uh, seeing the whole wall being repaired at the same time I'm sure it was quite a good morale boost as well to the people. You know, like when a bunch of people work together on a on a big project and you can see all the progress. I wouldn't doubt there was some good-natured competition maybe among the different family groups um, to see whose section of the wall was going up quicker. I imagine if you saw the people over here and the people over here and they were A row or two ahead of you, it would make you uh, dig in and work a little harder, wouldn't it? But as with uh, most worthwhile things, there was also opposition and challenge. Their enemies were alarmed to see these walls taking shape. Status quo and moss-covered rocks lying around uh, weren't a threat. Sort of like a cat plays with a mouse. You know, it'll let it run a little bit, but it always knows it can get it back. The people were disorganized and weak and helpless, but a city with real walls and gates that could be shut, uh, that was a different matter for, for the enemies of the Jews. But knowing Nehemiah as we've gotten to know him here, we would expect nothing less than him meeting this difficulty the same way he's done previously, right, with prayer. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, Hear us, O our God. At first, the words of the enemies, uh, their enemies, were were mocking ones. They mocked their wall-building efforts. If a fox would climb up on the wall, it'll break your stones. But then it morphed to, uh, to real threats. It says they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Once, once more, verse 9 of chapter 4 says, they prayed to the Lord, or we prayed to the Lord our God. So there are some, some additional details to this amazing story that we're not going to have time to cover this morning. But I would like to read uh, two verses yet from chapter six. Verse uh, fifteen and sixteen. One of those verses is up here on the board. Chapter six, fifteen says, So the wall was completed on the twenty fifth of Elul in fifty two days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. What a project. What an effort. One man's burden, uh, one man's leadership, one man's God uh, did the impossible. And a reconstructed wall once more stood around Jerusalem Fifty-two days, a project that no one had gotten around to finishing for decades and decades, got done in 52 days. So Nehemiah was, was a man of flesh and blood, just like us. So what are some lessons so we can learn I'd like to highlight uh, a few of those. Uh, we've, we've touched on some of them as we went through, but I'd like to maybe go back to a few of those, highlight them again just to remind us before we close. Number one, um, God gives special burdens. As children of God, we are we're all workers in his kingdom, but, but he gives us in different ways. I believe that he has specific tasks that he, and tasks and areas um, for us to work on, things for us to do, and I think he often reveals these by by special areas of concern, and they might be different for for each one of us. Some needs are obvious, and some needs are less so. And may only be, be spotted by the person who has the special burden for that need. Nehemiah's burden came from God. In the years uh, before Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, God had used a man named Zerubbabel and he used him to start the, jumpstart the rebuilding of the temple and to institute worship in Jerusalem. And then there was a man, Ezra who was actually in Jerusalem at the same time as Nehemiah, he returned to Jerusalem a few years before Nehemiah got there, and he helped restore true worship. And they dealt with sin problems and so forth uh, with, with the people. So God used these men for other things. But the walls were still gaping, and the stones were still laying in heaps until a burden. Nehemiah, uh, took it upon himself or was directed by God to do something about them. So let's be sensitive to these uh, God-given burdens. God certainly has tasks for all of us if we allow him to, to nudge us in the right way. Uh, number two, we should be challenged by Nehemiah's example of leadership. And we we talked about this phrase earlier, come, let us. True leadership walks with those it's responsible to lead. It invites and partners with them. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus and his words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we're invited to partner with him, learn from him. He doesn't just tell us yoke up and pull. He pulls with us. And it's so easy uh, to just Stand back and bark orders. This is what I do sometimes. But servant leadership gets involved and gets dirty and uses words like we and us. Nehemiah records at the end of chapter 4 that he and his men kept their weapons uh, strapped on at all times, and they didn't even change their clothes. That's a pretty involved leader. That's a leader who is yoked with his people. And I bet Nehemiah uh, got his hands dirty. That's an example that each of us can use. No matter what our leadership role is, God has called us different ways, but we all have people in our care. Come, let us. And finally, the last thing, um, I think we should be challenged by Nehemiah, and that's his, just his willingness to be used. Uh, so many people have been used by God in mighty ways, but they all have one thing in common, and that is availability. Even the most gifted person can't accomplish much if, for God if he's not willing or available to do the task. And I had to think of uh, Granddaddy when I thought about this. You know, he spent his life working hard, farming, doing other things, being active. And then later in his life, uh, he had vision trouble, was almost blind, and that really hampered his, his ability to do uh, what we would consider maybe important things. Yet uh, every morning he'd, he'd come out to the barn and during milking make his rounds and there wasn't a lot he could do but his job the thing that he did was to help clean up and spray down the barn and he kind of did it by feel honestly or by sound I guess Uh, he would just kind of hear what he was doing and he'd done it years for years and so he could that was one thing he could do not a glamorous task and he stretched the imagination but something that needed to be done. And he saw to it that it was done. In the kingdom of God, no one is above a job. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, a willing cupbearer. And in this study, I couldn't help but think about another person and his cup. Uh, We read this in Matthew. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. His willingness to do a task uh, set before him made a difference for the world, His example of willingness and love inspires and challenges us and in turn uh, calls us also to live a willing life for him. Thank you for your attention this morning. May God bless us all.